Hi, everyone. Welcome to Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. I am your host, Jareth Rossman. Man, I can't believe we're already to episode six. It feels like just yesterday I was sitting down to record the trailer for the podcast. Now, I want to start today's episode by sharing what I think is incredible news, and that news is this. I received a random email over the weekend notifying me that, drumroll please, the podcast has actually had really good performance over the last 30 days and is ranked 154th in the self-improvement category. Now, in the grand scheme of podcasting, that's probably very insignificant, but to me and my little world, that's absolutely amazing. I'm so humbled and grateful for all of my listeners and your support. It makes all of the long nights worth every second, and I sincerely want to thank each of you. Now, as I mentioned last week, on today's episode, I want to start the next chapter in my recovery, my 90 days in a sober living home. I also want to discuss a couple of critical first steps to take when you are new to recovery or maybe even just considering a life of sobriety for whatever reasons. And lastly, I want to briefly touch on the importance of being of service to others and how it directly relates to the Daily Five. So let's get started. Now, before I start talking about my specific sober living home and experiences, I think it's important to explain what a sober living home actually is and its intended purposes. And trust me when I say that not all sober living homes are created equal. So, as I mentioned last week, sober living or transitional living is generally some type of residence that houses 6 to 20-ish people depending on the size of the home, and in most cases, all of the residents are of the same gender, and for good reasons. Now, the primary goal of sober living is to give alcoholics and addicts a safe and structured environment to reside while transitioning back into the real world. Because like me, most of the new residents are fresh out of rehab, entering back into the world with the longest stretch of sobriety they've had in years. But more importantly, or at least in theory, without the one tool in their tool belt they've used for all of those years, the drugs or the alcohol. Now, that's the basic setup of a sober living home and the intent behind it. But as I mentioned a second ago, not all sober living homes are created equal. So what I'm going to do first is explain how my sober living home operated. Then I'll discuss other sober living operations so you can understand the differences. And my goal here is to give you an inside look so that you have a full understanding of my journey, but more importantly, a better understanding of what an alcoholic or addict and their family will experience if they or a loved one ever considers transitional living as an option in their road to recovery. And if you know me by now, you know I'm going to give the good with the bad. And while doing so, maybe I'll shift your perspective. And as always, I'm hoping I do it in a way that swings your perspective pendulum, that's a tongue twister, towards the positive. Now, my sober living home was NARR certified, which stands for the National Alliance of Recovery Residences. In a nutshell, that meant that this house was governed by a stricter set of rules and guidelines than most transitional living residences. So, what were those rules and guidelines? Well, obviously to start, drugs and alcohol were not allowed at any point, whether on the property or off. Random drug tests and breathalyzers were conducted throughout the week, and if you at any point tested positive for either, you had to immediately vacate the premises. Time of day didn't matter. If you were busted at 2.30 in the morning, then you were leaving at 3 in the morning, whether you had a place to go or not. 
There was a zero-tolerance policy, and it was strictly enforced. But honestly, it has to be that way. And that may seem harsh, but exceptions cannot be made because if you make it for one, then you're setting the wrong precedence, and that's the last thing you want to do with a bunch of alcoholics and addicts. Now, don't get me wrong, each situation is different, so each situation is handled differently. And believe me when I say, you see all kinds of situations. And why do I all of a sudden feel like I'm talking about the Jersey Shore instead of my sober living home? Anyways, I digress. Back to the topic. So, as I just mentioned, each situation is handled differently, and here's what I mean by that. And I'm going to use real-life examples. I think the biggest difference comes from the fact of whether or not the person was caught while actively using on the property or if they were busted after the fact. In one instance, a long-term resident was randomly tested on a Sunday afternoon, and surprisingly to all of us, he tested positive for cocaine. But he wasn't high or using in the moment, so he was allowed to gather his stuff and make arrangements before vacating the property that day. But on the flip side, another guy was caught in the house high as you know what on anything and everything. A drug test wasn't even needed in this situation. So immediately, his family was notified and he was brought to the emergency room where he could be cared for under medical supervision. His family was allowed to gather his belongings at a later date. And again, this may seem harsh or not, but these were the rules. And the resident and the family were fully aware of these rules before ever taking residence on the property. Because something I forgot to mention on the front end is that each resident at the house signed a 90-day commitment. But, If any rule was broken at any time, you could be asked to leave. Now, you may be asking yourself, who's actually enforcing the rules in a house full of alcoholics and addicts? And that's a great question. Again, this differs at each house, but our house had an actual house manager who owned the property and was a recover addict himself. He didn't actually live on the property, but he was at the house most days, if not every day. On top of having a house manager, we also had a lot of long-term sobriety in the house, which kept the house in check as well. And just to give you an idea, when I entered the house, we probably had three or four people that had close to two years sober in the house. And this is extremely valuable at a sober living because these guys are taking their sobriety very seriously. It's life or death for a lot of people in sober living, regardless of the length of their sobriety. Think I'm kidding? A young guy I was probably closest with while in the house, I mean, I would bring him to work, we'd go to meetings together, worked out together, played ping pong together, I mean, we did a lot together, and he was doing really well for a few years, was randomly found dead in a gas station parking lot with a needle in his arm. There have probably been at least 30 to 40 people that I met personally early in recovery that have since died of an overdose. And each time it hits you when you hear the news, but that young gentleman's hit the hardest. So when I say it's life or death, I mean it. And these three or four guys knew it too. So although they weren't the house managers, you kind of knew they were the house enforcers. And you really didn't want to be on their bad side, especially as a newbie. So as I mentioned, it kind of kept everyone in check. Emphasis on kinda, but that's for another episode. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that each person signed a 90-day commitment. So now that you have a basic understanding of what sober living is, I'm going to give you a more detailed overview of the structure at my house and the expectations of the addict or alcoholic over those 90 days. But 
Before I get started, there are two rules that I want to mention that apply to everyone in the house, regardless of how long you've been there. And those rules are no bars, no casinos, and no strip clubs. And absolutely no females allowed at the house, especially not for overnight stays. And I'll explain why this is important later. It has to do with that whole not all houses are created equal idea. So back to the initial 90 days. Now, in your first 30 days, the rules are toughest and your privileges are minimal. First and foremost, you had to be back at the house no later than 10 p.m. each night and you weren't allowed to stay overnight off-premises, whether it was a weekday or weekend. Secondly, you had to attend some type of recovery meeting every day. Now, that could be an AA meeting or some type of IOP meeting. And for those that don't know what IOP stands for, that means Intensive Outpatient Program. Next, you had to do one of the following three. Go to school, get a job, or volunteer at least 20 hours a week. You also had to start working with a sponsor within the first week or two of being at the house, and you also had to perform your daily chores. And each Sunday, you were required to attend the house meeting, and everyone was expected to attend regardless of their length of time in the house. Also on Sundays, each resident had to perform their one major weekly chore before that Sunday meeting started. Now, after your initial 30 days, the rules were relaxed slightly. Your nightly curfew was pushed back to 12 a.m. and you were allowed one overnight stay off property each week. And your meeting requirements were dropped from 7 to 5 weekly, but all of the other rules still applied. Now, after your initial 60 days, your curfew was pushed back to 2 a.m., at least on the weekends, and you were allowed two off-premise overnight stays each week. Again, all of the other rules still apply. So, that's a fairly broad overview of my house structure and how it operated. Now, earlier I mentioned that not all houses are created equal, so I want to take a minute and briefly talk about another style of sober living, and many of them are ran under a specific organization. Now, I'm not going to mention the name of the organization, but they are a national organization and operate thousands of houses around the country. And depending on the size of your city, there are probably a few dozen around you and you have no idea. Now, there are two primary differences between my house and this organization, and I believe they are key differences. First, these houses are run democratically, meaning they govern themselves, so there isn't a house manager. Instead, there's an elected house leader chosen by the residents of the property, and all issues within the house are voted on by all the residents. Now, in theory, this doesn't seem all that bad, and generally it isn't, but serious issues arise when you have what's called a dirty house. Essentially, that means the residents are actively drinking and drugging, and typically it starts with the house leader. Think about it. If the elected leader is actively using in the house, then what's to keep the other members from actively using? And the problem? There is no oversight because the house governs itself. You can see how this can be a recipe for serious disaster for a variety of reasons. Now, the second biggest difference, which may seem trivial, but to me is critical, is the fact that these houses allow the opposite sex at the house. Not only are they allowed, but they are also allowed to stay overnight. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but let me paint a quick picture for you. Imagine little Jimmy is fresh out of rehab and he meets little Jenny at a meeting who is also fresh out of rehab. 
They start dating, and two weeks later, they are madly in love. Now, one day, little Jenny comes over to wait for little Jimmy to get off of work, and while waiting for little Jimmy, little Johnny comes home. Next thing you know, little Jimmy walks into the house to find little Johnny and little Jenny cuddled up in little Jimmy's bed. Now, hopefully you were able to follow all of that. Now, I know that situation sounds very elementary, but for people fresh into recovery, avoiding situations like those are critical. The idea is to create a safe environment void of as many potential triggers as possible. But unfortunately, with this type of structure, it tends to create a house full of trigger landmines. Now, I'm not saying this style of house can't work. I'm sure it's worked for thousands of people. I'm just giving information based on my own actual experience. It's up to the person and their family to do their own research and make the decision that's best for them. Okay, so I think we've talked enough about sober living for today. I wanted to take some time this episode to talk about my first couple of weeks in my sober living home, but that'll have to wait until next week. Now, in keeping with the theme of this episode, I do want to discuss three critical steps I think anyone new to recovery or anyone considering a life of recovery should take in their initial few days of sobriety. And speaking of a life of sobriety, I want to point out that you don't have to be an alcoholic to consider an alcohol-free lifestyle. The benefits of sobriety are endless whether you're an alcoholic or not. Okay, back to the regularly scheduled program and back to the initial three steps. And I think these steps are even more critical for the people that don't attend some type of inpatient or outpatient program. First, I think you need to get to an AA meeting. And I think it's best to attend one in person. I know they have virtual options now, but the communal benefits are so much stronger when you're there in person. And I think getting to a meeting is crucial for a couple of reasons. First, it gives you a supportive network. And I know it's difficult walking into some random meeting, especially an AA meeting, and even more so if nobody knows about your little problem because it's like you're letting the proverbial cat out of the bag. But that's the great thing about going to an AA meeting. Everyone there has the same problem as you, and they welcome all new guests with open arms. And there's a vow of anonymity so nobody can talk about the things they see or hear at a meeting outside of that meeting. The next major benefit of attending a meeting is the knowledge. I mentioned this in an episode before, but there are decades worth of wisdom and sobriety in those rooms, and you can't buy that type of wisdom in a book or find it online. And lastly, it gives you an outlet to share your fears and challenges, while at the same time giving you an opportunity to share your victories and tribulations, which may help others in that same room. And if you don't know how to find a meeting, don't worry, I've got you covered. Just visit www.aa.org. There, you will find a list of meetings in your area with locations and meeting times. Now, the second critical step after attending a meeting is getting a sponsor, which you'll typically find at a meeting. A sponsor is crucial because that person can help guide you through the most important steps needed to take when fresh into recovery. Not only that, but that person becomes your very own recovery tour guide that will be there for you any time of the day. Feeling an urge to drink or drug at 2 a.m.? Call your sponsor. I bet 9 out of 10 times, they'll answer. And they've been in your shoes, so they know exactly what you're going through and what you will go through. 
They become one of your closest confidants, especially early in recovery. And here's the even better news. You don't have to stay with that one sponsor forever. If you don't gel for whatever reason, then there's nothing that says you can't find someone that you relate better to. At the end of the day, everyone wants what's best for each other, so make sure you work with someone that you're comfortable working with. Now, the last critical step for anyone new to recovery is reading the first 88 pages of the big book. The first edition was printed in 1939, but believe me when I say that everything in those 88 pages still apply 82 years later. At a minimum, it'll give you a fundamental understanding of what it means to be an alcoholic. And honestly, even if you aren't an alcoholic and maybe just impacted by alcoholism through a friend or family member, I'd recommend you reading the big book as well. It'll give you an inside look at how an alcoholic thinks and why we act the way we act, especially when drinking. And if you follow my steps, then your sponsor will typically read the big book with you. And as I mentioned before, I was part of a big book study. And honestly, I looked forward to that hour each week more so than attending the meetings. There's a lot of valuable knowledge in those initial 88 pages. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, this guy Jareth is extremely hypocritical. He told us in a previous episode that he doesn't even actively work the AA program, but now he's telling us to go to AA meetings, get a sponsor, and read the big book. Sure does sound a lot like the AA program to me. Well, you're right. I did say I don't currently work the AA program, but if you remember, I did say that AA was critical to my sobriety success, especially when I was new to recovery, and I still stand by that statement today. Now, I'm not saying you have to work the AA program, but I do think it drastically increases your chances for recovery success, which is a great transition to the last topic of this episode, being of service to others. If you talk to anyone with long-term sobriety, you'll hear a common theme about the importance of helping others. Most recovered alcoholics or addicts make some type of effort to help others in recovery, not only because it's the right thing to do, but also because it helps them with their own personal journey. I mentioned this in episode one. There is no better feeling than the feeling you get when you've helped someone who is struggling with an issue, any type of issue, whether it be a financial issue health issue, job issue, or even a relationship issue. We've all overcome some type of major challenge in our lives, and we need to channel those experiences and triumphs to help guide others and offer hope. I think especially of cancer survivors. Cancer impacts everyone in some way or fashion. If you fought the difficult battle and lived to tell about it, spread that message to others currently fighting that battle. Explain to them how you can empathize with what they are going through and give them courage through your encouragement. Show them all the reasons they need to keep fighting or at a minimum, be a support system for them. You already have their buy-in because you've been in their shoes and can relate to everything they're going through. And watch all of the joy and happiness it brings to you internally. But this honestly pertains to all walks of life. Another big opportunity in my opinion is working with people being released from prison. A lot of these people are released back into the real world with no hope or guidance, so they just end up doing the same criminal things they are most familiar with. If you've been there and turned your life into a positive, reach out to the prisons and figure out a way to work with people that are pending release. Show them what you did to make a change for the better. 
And if you have a program that's worked for you, reach out to me. I'd love to have you on the podcast to talk about it. I know we don't live in a perfect world, and I know we can't help or save everyone, but my point is we can all give back. We've all been through trials and tribulations, and the benefits of sharing our experiences with others has a rippling effect on humanity and creates an emotional impact within ourselves that even the Daily Five would be jealous of. Now, if you feel like you don't have any experiences to share that can help others, then that's okay too. I've got a solution for you as well. Join a service organization. So many people are caught up wanting to join networking groups, and those are fine, but I've found a major difference between networking groups and service organizations, and that difference is this. People walk into networking groups thinking, what can others do for me, while people walk into service organizations thinking, what can I do for others? As always, I want to thank you for listening, and please keep reaching out and sending feedback Believe me when I say it never gets old. I hope you'll join me next week as I discuss my first couple of weeks in sober living, give you an inside look at what led to my alcoholism, and discuss the importance of setting realistic goals when it comes to sobriety and the Daily Five. I promise you won't want to miss it. Thanks again, everyone, and I look forward to you joining me next week on Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. (laughs) 